0: Quiet
1: on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on
0: the set. Scene one, take ten, marker. studio of WHUP-LP Hillsborough, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour, together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, maybe these maps and legends, storyteller, teacher, cartographer, Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. is with us. Welcome. murmur my name is Robert Malazzo of the Modern School of Film always excited to be here with you at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern via whupfm.org also we are evergreen on iTunes Google Play and Stitcher we have a website murmurradio.com you can see who's coming up you can also email us and ask us a question we have social handles at MSF Murmur, that's uh, Twitter, Instagram. We also have the Mothership website, which is modernschoolfilm.com. Therein, you can see our live events. We have a, a live event coming up next week. We are in London with uh, Donnie Yen discussing the state of martial arts cinema. The uh, following week, we are in Chicago at the Onion Comedy Festival, talking to Christopher Guest in a program we call In Pictures. We'll talk more about that program today. And that's May 31st, Onion Comedy Festival. Come say hi. I'll be there. Come say hi. Let me know you listen to the show, because people are listening. You're, that, you're out there. Be Be proud. Let us know you listen to Murmur. Make us feel happy. Feedback is a is a beautiful thing. Uh, so Chicago, London, London, Chicago, and then more places on the map. But we're here every week with you live, plausibly live, and then we are downloadable. Today, Doctor Henry Lewis Gates Jr. Please call me Skip Gates, uh, and now we call him Skip. I think his nickname as a child was Skippy. And I think his dad, his mom used to call his dad Gates. But we'll we'll we're we're set at Skip. We're feeling good about Skip. The good doctor will be with us now. The way he is with us, we just did an event in Boston with Skip, and the event is part of a series called In Pictures. And the premise of In Pictures is the guest. We asked the guest to choose three films from one from each state distinct stage of their life that had a meaning. From chi- one, from, one film from childhood, one film from a period of time when their career was becoming public, and one current or more recent film. And around that we talk about other films, but there are three keynote films. So you're going to hear today Dr. Gates talk about the three films he chose. Now, we talk about other things, because Dr. Gates, Skip, is an incredible storyteller, and everything is a story within a story, within a box. And we love that about him. Uh, the event... In Boston was two hours. It could have been 22 hours. And we're going to bring you the choice cuts today within the next hour on Murmur. The series in pictures is one we've done, one I've done for the past year or so. And we're doing another one with Christopher Guest in Chicago. And it's interesting because I, I'm trying to box in the true value of movies what what other what what are the value attributes of a film not the characteristics of a film but what do they continue to feed in us and after speaking with skip and you're going to hear a really cool conversation I had a lot of fun and skip was great I, I think one of the things I can put on my list I don't know how long it's a very short list and but on the list now are the following films help us remember other things. I used to think that characteristic or that quality of a film or that power of a film that I thought at one point I thought that was only reserved for music. That music because music has you know music is in your pathology. It's in your ear hole while other things are going on. So in a Pavlovian way, I thought music would always be the standard by which memories are exhumed or connected into art. And it's true. Music hasn't, I don't think, lost that. We remember where we were or who we were with or what we were looking at or a time in our life when we hear a song. But I think films are starting to also contribute to that that potential. And Dr. Gates, when you hear Skip talk about films... It's all about everything so much of his memory of that film is tied into his other memories, so i think I think that's a good thing. Um, it's almost like a hearing aid or a pair of thick glasses, a movie. And that may sound old fashioned, and it may relegate it towards an old fashioned. Quality, an old-fashioned category. But that's something, you know, when, the more I talk to people about films, it's about the film, but it's also about those times, and that's why this series has been so cool. I'm a little bittersweet about that, that finding that film can help us remember a time, because I always thought, well, that means I'm getting old, and I am getting old. You're getting old as you listen to this. You're older than you were when you started listening to this today. <laughs> I'm sure you knew that but I do think it it so it's not simply looking at old movies talking about old movies it's movies as a wormhole back to time and that's really that won't change and that's not a technological idea that's a experiential idea and I think we need more gravitas around the exper- experiential worth of movies and that's one of them the other thing talking to skip I, I realize, and i i don't think this is something i'm realizing uniquely but i think the more and more i'm realizing it it serves for many people not simply myself i mean i've i've found i hate this term film studies because it makes you feel it makes me feel like we're going to sit in a room and stare at a movie and study it and its qualities, but I think film studies are movies are a gateway drug into other bits of information about what was going on at the time, what was going on around the time of the creation and the time of the creators. Less about Wikipedia, the 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 qualities of the authorship or the the world, the investigation of the of the of the life of the authors of that film, more about what was going on at the time in that country. And I think when you hear or in in the system of movies or in the system of culture, and I think when you hear Skip today you're going to be front and center with that beauty that skips three choices, and he, he talks, we talk about more than three films. There is a sociological piece. There is a map piece, and Skip is an expert mapper. There is a, there is a kind of longer view of reality that film grants us. It's, it's kind of like a footstool. You know, we, we can get a little higher than the fray, and in so doing, understand the fray better. So I think those are two that I'm. I'm almost. I'm. I'm about to chisel them in stone on my tablet, of what film does now. Or what does it serve? And the tablet is not a tombstone. It's simply something that can't be erased. So, onto that tablet are those two qualities. And it's something. You know, I think it's something or these ideas are things I'm, I'm instinctually in touch with, but speaking with Skip and the bigger the brain, the more you get, you become touched by it. Not, you know, that, that's it. There's a difference between being in touch and touched. And our talk with Skip in Boston recently left me both as great moments in time do and great experiences with people Discussing interesting ideas and things we love, do. In touch and touched. Dr. Henry Lewis Gates, Jr., Skip, call, please call me Skip Jr., please call me Skip, today on Murmur. First, this. It's
2: beautiful. It's breathtaking. Have you a favorite, Mr. Tibbs? Well, I am partial to any of the epiphanics. Why isn't that remarkable? That of all the orchids in this place, you should prefer the epiphytics. I wonder if you know why. Maybe it would be helpful if you'd tell me. Because, like the negra, they need care and feeding and cultivating, and that takes time. That's something you can't make some people understand. That's something Mr. Colbert didn't realize. Is this what the apophytics root in? My point. They thrive on it. Take it away from them, they do poorly. What do you call this material? That's Osmondon. Fern root. Well, we
3: don't want to take any more of your time, Mr. Endicott.
2: Why did you two come here? To ask you about Mr. Colbert. Let me
3: understand this. You two came here to question
2: me? Well, your... your attitudes, Mr. Endicott, your points of view are a matter of record. Some people, well, let us say the people who work for Mr. Colbert might reasonably regard you as the person least likely to mourn his passing. We were just trying to clarify some of the evidence was Mr. Colbert ever in this greenhouse say last night about midnight Gillespie
3: yeah you saw it I saw it well what are you gonna do about it
2: I
1: reminisce,
4: uh. yeah. I reminisce for a spell, or shall I say, think back 22 years ago to keep it on track. The birth of a child on the 8th of October. my toast, but my granddaddy came sober. Count all the fingers and the toes. Now I suppose your hope the little black boy grows. <laughs> younger than my mama. Uh, but I really got beatings with the girl of trauma. Yeah. In single parenthood, there I stood. Uh, By the time she was 21, had another one. Yeah. This one's yeah. a girl. Right. Let's name her Pam. Same father as the first, but you don't give a damn. Right. Irresponsible, right. plain, not thinking. Yeah. Papa yeah. said, chill, but the brother keep winking. Uh-huh. Still, he won't down, you would tear out your hide. On your side, while the baby make a slide. But mama got wise to the game. Uh, the youngest uh, of five kids, hun, here it is. Yeah. After 10 years without no spouse, yeah. Mamas getting married in the house. What? Listen, what? positive over negative for the woman a master. Uh-huh. Mother queens rise in the chapter. Yeah. Deja vu, tell you what I'm gonna do, do when they reminisce over you, my god. My god.
5: Uh, Dr. Gates talk about. Me now, I never use doctor Because I'm afraid Somebody's going to have A heart attack on an
0: airplane They'll come to me Is there a doctor In the house no. say, See you later baby You know like good luck <laughs> Tell mama hi <laughs> You know like, <laughs> Well it's funny Part of the introduction I didn't say Is at nine years old I believe you proclaimed You wanted to be A Rhodes Scholar How were you <laughs> even t- In touch with that concept At nine years old
5: Wow that's interesting um, Actually two words That are unpopular to say But uh, Bill Cosby Because Bill Cosby, the fall of 1965. So I would have been 15. I spy, remember Bill Cosby was the first person to star in a drama, primetime drama, first person of color. And he was a Rhodes Scholar. Amazing. Now I remember, that's my first conscious memory of a Rhodes Scholar, so. Right. Uh, maybe at nine I did, but I don't know. It would have been <laughs> for my mother and my father. I wouldn't sell yourself too short. You know, my father worked two jobs. He worked in a paper mill in the day. It was a janitor in the evening. But his first cousin went to Harvard. So there, there were, and it's an interesting story, there were three daughters and a son. Um, I grew up in eastern West Virginia. So P- Piedmont was, that Piedmont. was where you grew up. It's where I'm from. Right. And all my Piedmont is halfway between Pittsburgh and Washington right. in the Allegheny Mountains on the Potomac River. And this is what I'm about to say is not true for anybody in this room, I think, or anybody that you've ever met. My three sets of my fourth great grandparents we could identify, and they were born in the 18th century wow. free Negroes, right? What's a free Negro? You were a slave and then you became free early before um, the Emancipation Proclamation or the end of the Civil War, the 13th Amendment. So they lived in the 18th century, and they lived. Three sets of my fourth great grandparents, on both my mother's and father's side, lived 18 miles from where I was born. Wow! I'm a Redman on my mother's side and a Redman on my father's side. That's incredible. Isn't that amazing? That and is it incredible. was a very stable, free black population in the hills of what's now West Virginia and uh, Virginia. So the end of this story is that we owned a 200-acre farm, the Gates Farm, and um, they had three daughters and a son, as I said, and at the turn of the century, they sent the three daughters to college in Washington. One went to Howard, became a nurse, um, and two became teachers, and one married a dentist, one married a pharmacist, and one married a sign painter, and they kept the boy on the farm, and I'm descended from the boy. Oh, wow. And so, Helen Lee, some people might know her, she's a famous, well-known novelist, and she's a professor at MIT, and she's my cousin. Her <laughs> grandmother, my grandfather, were brothers and sisters, and she went to Harvard, and then Harvard Law School, and teaches at MIT, and I went to Yale, you know, and it's just go figure. It's just one of those curious things.
0: So what do you believe in? What's the, you know, do you believe in, a word I wrestle with as a teacher a lot, you know, is luck. I'm not saying that's a tale of luck, I'm saying that, is I believe in luck. Do you? Oh my God, yeah.
1: That's sometimes kind of I'll find my.
5: You know, black people say, "Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus." <laughs> when something good happens, and sometimes I just spontaneously say that, um, because it is. There are a lot of really smart people. Lots. You know, when Obama, I like Barack Obama, but one of the things his propaganda machine did, which I thought was really a mistake, when to to over, well, to defeat racist stereotypes of black people. Remember when he was elected? Seems so far, long ago, right? <laughs> yes. They, uh, uh, <laughs> they used to say he was the smartest guy in the room. Now, there is no smartest guy in the room, or woman in the room. If you are a place like we live in, everybody's smart. They're smart in different ways, right? You don't have to make that kind of claim. So I know, I think I'm a reasonably intelligent person, but there are a lot of really intelligent people. And they don't end up with the kind of fairy tale life that I think that I've led. So I think that luck, I think I work very hard. I like to think that I'm well prepared, I try to be. But luck is, um, I may, I'll give you an example. I wanted, always wanted to build a great center. I always, I had a lot of fan, I'm a fantasy meter, right? <laughs> but I wanted the chance to build a great center of African and African American studies. I didn't get tenure at Yale, so much for being so smart. I got tenure at Cornell when I was still at Yale at the age of 33. They made a preemptive strike, and they made me a full professor at the age of 33, and what Yale said was write another book. They promoted me to associate professor without tenure. Told me write another book, which is a way of saying, you know, kiss off. So I quit, I went to, to Cornell. I wanted to build a great center of African and African American studies there. And there, there were a bunch of black nationalists who thought I was this the handkerchief head Uncle Tom. And, you know, was I, there's no way that we ever could have really worked together. So then I got this great job offer at Duke, as you know, and I was there for two years. Then I get this phone call from Harvard because Derek Bach was in the last year of his 20-year presidency, and he thought that his signal failure, and he said this publicly, was the dismal state of the... Department of Afro-American Studies, as it was called then. And so they brought me up, and I happened to have two good friends who were inside working on my behalf. It Wasn't a real job search. I gave a job talk. I thought it was gonna be a little seminar for the English department. Because I have a PhD in English literature. I walked in, like, 500 people were in there. <laughs> and I gave <laughs> this talk. And it went very well, thank God. And I just testified for Two Live Crew. How many of you know Two Live Crew? Remember the rap group? <laughs> One of the many things that I did wrong at Duke was to defend the First Amendment. Two live crew, were they were arrested, remember, for profanity in Broward County, yeah. Florida. Now all the people talk dirty in America, you're gonna arrest these two black guys, right? What's wrong with this picture? So they were homophobic, they were sexist, they were everything, and they had the right to be. And I believe in the First Amendment. So I wrote an op-ed page for the New York Times about signifying and playing the dozens and how this was, Parody. And in 1989 book you wrote, Signifying Monkey. Monkey, Signifying, it was my big tenure book. Right. So I get this phone call from their lawyer, Luther Campbell's lawyer, and they were found guilty. Then they appealed, they asked if I would come down and be the expert witness. So I got down there, I just brought an overnight bag, and I was basically sequestered. You know, They put me in a hotel, they bought me clothes, and finally I testified. And guess what, they got off, I, mean, I was really proud of that. But by the time I got back to Duke, big headlines, Gates embarrasses universe. <laughs> Defending, remember what the state of hip-hop was in 1989, people just thought
0: yeah. it was the whole ball. We don't have to hold any thought, but in 1989, a number, another summer, we're gonna get to that. We're gonna get to that.
5: <laughs> so I'm this embarrassment to university and I'd never had that kind of experience before. You know, I loved, I've been in school since I was six years old, I never left. I liked it so much. and. Um, I didn't know what to do. Then I get this phone call to come to Harvard and give this job talk. So I gave a talk about Franz Fanon and his theory of criticism. All these people, and the first question was, "Why did you testify for two live crew?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "What the hell? Might as well go for it." Yeah. And I said, <clears throat> "I said, well, let me say one thing. I am a sentimentalist about the First Amendment. I said I will always stand up for for the First Amendment and against anti-black racism. And if you don't like that, then." I might as well go back to, to Duke. And I got basically a really warm, I'm almost standing ovation, I guess. Now, am I lucky or not? You see, that all, yes, I was prepared, I had written books, but I had been at Yale, I wanted to build, I'd been at Cornell, I'd been at Duke, nobody would let me do it. And all of a sudden, where? The most unlikely place of all, I could come and build a great center of African and African-American studies, which is just what happened. How could I not? Say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. You know what I mean. No matter what you what your religion is.
0: 20, 25 years plus later, you're still here. Oh,
5: I wouldn't leave. I mean, I love it
0: here. Yeah. <laughs> One of the words that kept coming up, thinking about you prepping for today, is this word storytelling. Truly. And you talked a little bit about I've read where you, your dad was a great storyteller. Oh, yeah, my mom too. And the family, and, and they respected you and your brother. Like your parents respected you as say equals, but there was a, there was they a, told us
5: family secrets. They told us who was do- who was sleeping with whom, all kind of things. Which they said, "Don't tell any of your cousins," but this is really what's going on.
1: So, so, <laughs> so
5: I didn't tell anybody till I put it all in a book. <laughs> and after which, nobody in my mother's family ever spoke to me again. <laughs>
0: Well, it's funny this idea then, tra- as it transfers, that people are stories. You know, we are inherently stories. I like the fact that, you know, even though, though your parents were talking to you about people, there was a story, there was a kind of tapestry of a story. Yeah. Um, we're, we're And I know you were a journalist, tw- what was it, 12 years old you wrote your first journalistic piece? I had um, uh, a... very important piece on the, the, the Little League at that time. Yeah, I had something. my own
5: column in the Piedmont Herald, seeing my name in print. Seeing
0: that byline is powerful. Seeing that
5: byline. Yeah. yeah. That... I'm, that every week, compiled by Skip Gates, man, that was eternal, it's and I've never lost that rush. But the first image of a writer I had was my mother used to write the obituaries for all the colored people, as we would have said then, in the Potomac Valley. People would die, and they would call her and say, "Pauline, her name Pauline Coleman, Pauline Augusta, and that beautiful name, Pauline Augusta Coleman Gates," and they would say, "Pauline, you have right please write the eulogy," and then it would be, she would write it. It would. She would then go to the funeral, stand up and read the eulogy. Then it would be published in the Piedmont Herald, our weekly uh, newspaper. Yeah. And before I started school, she would dress me up. My mother was a seamstress. She had gone to, to, uh, from Piedmont to Atlantic City to sewing school. You know, in our family home in West Virginia, which we sold after my parents' died, we had this wall of degrees. So my brother's an old surgeon, all his degrees, my degrees. And then right in the middle of my mother's seamstress certificate. I had this fantasy from the time I was a kid to go to Harvard, Yale, Oxford Cambridge. And um, I'd applied It's a
0: typical to, childhood fantasy.
5: Yeah. Just <laughs> and I'd applied to all these fellowships and I didn't get all these any fellowship. I was down to one. It was a Mellon fellowship. And I got it. I got the Mellon. I would be a finalist. I don't know what I did wrong. You know, I had <laughs> fabulous grades. You know, I had I was so I was gonna come back and go to law school. And medical school, and I was black. I was from West Virginia. How was I not going to get this fellowship? Right, <laughs> 1973, and I would get. I was turned down all these fellowships. I had one left, the Mellon Fellowship, and I got it. They picked two kids every year. Uh, it was endowed by Paul Mellon because he graduated from Yale and went to Clare College at the University of Cambridge, and he had such a good time. He had set up this endowment, so you had a fabulous amount of money to spend, five thousand dollars a year in 1973. Wow. That was more than. A, the average income for a family of four in England. And anyway, so I applied for it, and I got it. They were, and it's uh, the first woman and the first black person, me. Um, we were the two people selected that And I went back to my college, Calhoun College, famously, infamously, Calhoun College at Yale. <laughs> and I called um, my parents at about four o'clock in the afternoon, my dad got home from his first job at 3.30, because the paper mill whistle blew, and everybody came home at 3.30, and school let up. So I knew he'd be home at four o'clock, and Daddy picked up the phone, and I said, "Daddy, Daddy, put Mama on the extension phone." Remember that? You had you didn't have two phones; you had one phone and an extension phone. <laughs> and she picked up upstairs like, "Mama, Daddy, you never play, you never play." I got a melon, I'm going to Cambridge. The, I said, "I'm the first Afro-American," as we would have said in February of '73 the first Afro-American to get a melon Fellowship, without missing a beat, my dad said, you're the first Negro to get a melon Fellowship? I said, yeah, daddy. He said, huh, they're gonna call it the Watermelon Fellowship now. <laughs> So if you want to know why I'm crazy and politically incorrect, <laughs> now you know why.
0: Good night, everybody. Cause my,
5: cause That's like, uh, my father was my father made Red Fox look like an undertaker, you know. <laughs> <laughs> my father was irreverent, funny. It was just great. It was great.
0: This was what my week was like with your work and your study. I mean, doors led to doors led to doors led to windows. It was amazing. This guy is crazy. He must have sent me crazy. a million
5: emails. And I changed the list. <laughs> You know, I'm a movie junkie. I go to movies. <laughs> Let's by get to Let's
0: break it down here.
5: <laughs> by, by the way, um, well, I, 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 my, my father at this point said, I can't remember what lie I'm telling you. know what? <laughs> yeah. Every Friday and Saturday night, my girlfriend and I have a standing date and we go to the movies. Um, is, is, it has to be an extraordinary dinner or something for me to uh, not to go to the movies. And I stand in line, I get the popcorn, wow. I get Diet Coke and then I slouch down in the seat and I put my knee in and somebody's back.
0: And, I, and watch Iron you know, Man. Move. I'll see anything. <laughs> like what do movies say about people to you? Can we learn something through people's love of a certain movie or a certain? I'm sure you can, but I
5: am, so I, I like all movies. I mean, I will tell you, um, I, I will sit through, I, I have never, I don't think I've ever walked out of a movie. Hmm. And Mariel, my girl, she would walk out in two seconds. <laughs> if you ask me in a fantasy life what would i if i had had this life if i could have been a successful filmmaker and successful is part of that sentence key part i would have made i make documentaries but i would have made feature films that would have been one of my fantasy lives being a psychiatrist would have been one
0: but the race is not over yet i mean this is it's, no
5: and there you know i have things in development right everybody <laughs> knows things in development right? it's <laughs> yes. like 18 billion Films in development, yeah. but um, no, I would like that pleasure of doing that. So one, I know how hard it is to put something on screen, and so every time I go to the movie and the credits roll, I want to say, "Father, Son, Holy Ghost." You know, it's like a,
0: yeah. it's like a miracle. It is a miracle. Movies it come is. Together. You cannot imagine how
5: hard it is actually to make a film. And you, when one is the success, you think anybody would have made that. Yeah. Give me a break.
0: It, let's talk about some of the movies that you wanted to talk about because your taste is pretty exquisite. Okay. The first movie uh, was Green Pastures. Oh, yeah. I uh, love 19- this film. 1936. Uh, there are a couple,
5: for my generation, canonical shaping uh, films for the black community. Yep. And it's just, it's heaven. It's black heaven. It's the Old Testament. The story of Noah and God and, and, and everybody's black in, in heaven. Now, back in the, now you can watch anything anytime you want. But then, they only showed um, movies on the Late Late Show, black movies, and you just have to wait till they were, yeah, maybe once a year. And when it was coming up, the black grapevine Violent, man, Green Pasture's gonna be on next, on Friday night. And Everybody go, wow, Green Pasture's on 11 o'clock. And then you would watch it. Or people <laughs> would call each other and they'd say, if there was something black on TV, they'd say, color, color, on Channel 5. <laughs> then you'd say, call somebody, color, color, on Channel 5. <laughs> And then everybody would, would watch it. Yeah. And, uh, and I love this film. What is it? I'd like to remake it.
0: That would be amazing. But why do,
5: don't you think a lot of people know about this film? I think the people would find it embarrassing today. You know, it's like a lot of black jokes, and you know, God is black. Rex Harrison uh, plays D Lord. D Lord, yeah. And uh, you know, Noah likes to drink wine. Remember, even in the Bible, Noah, I think, asked for God to give him extra cask of wine for balance. And God said, you don't really need that. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but it's very clean and, yeah. you know, worshipful. You could take your whole church if you were a, a literal believer. Yeah. Um, but you know, heaven is they can eat watermelon and have fish fries. You know, it's like a stereotype of black people in heaven. Do you think it's aged well? Um, but when I watch it, I'm five years old, you know I'm 10, I'm with my parents and part of the magic is being transported um, back there in my living room, you know watching it on a little 12 inch RCA Victor TV yeah and which was just as powerful as any huge you know megaplex, 3D screen that you could ever see. You know, it was, it was magical to me. So that I'm not, I'm trying to say, an objective film critic when it comes to these because I watch them through an emotional lens that beclouds my objectivity or drips with subjectivity. You know, you could think of it that way.
0: The next film was uh, Blood of Jesus. This oh is a, yeah. This again is a film I think even more so than Green Pastures, in, in this almost a cinema studies way, is is criminally overlooked.
5: Yeah, and well, now this film is famous. It's um, in all Will- the registers. Spencer Williams played Spencer Andy in and, and Andy yeah. was a great. He was a Spike Lee before Spike Incredible Lee. Incredible
0: independent filmmaker.
5: Genius. Yeah. And he. This is his greatest film and they thought that all the prints had been lost and 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 one was found.
0: This was a miracle that this was found yeah. because not all of his films are back on the record in the libraries.
5: And I think it's been put on the Library of Congress registry or one of those you know greatest films of all time.
0: Another almost high metaphor parable husband and wife a hunter Mm -hmm. a wife ends up having to kind of uh, debate for her life or her livelihood with Beelzebub. Uh, I collect
5: a Posters of old black cinemas for the uh, the Hutchins Center, which I direct, and uh, I'm looking for Blood of Jesus.
0: If I could read the tea leaves a little bit, there's something about metaphor on metaphor. Oh yeah, I was going to say metaphor and metaphor crime, but metaphor and metaphor that s- seems to stir a little bit of these. Was this always a following of yours at a young age? Were you always seeing the thing within the thing or yeah, around the absolutely. thing? Absolutely. Yeah.
5: But it's because my parents were masters of metaphor. Yeah. And they never said this is a metaphor, right. but they just—you just learned it. You just realized well, you're in, that what you're in, the appearance was, that beneath the appearance, behind the mask, there was another story, and that there were levels of signification. But we never would have said that in those fancy words then.
0: Your intuition, and yes, maybe it's a—it's a—it's a progeny of your family, uh, but your intuition must have been—is I
5: had—I was—I was gifted with instinct. instinct, but also yeah. if you're raised in a biblical tradition um, right you know Jesus spoke in parables right yeah. I mean the Bible's full of metaphors and allegories and somebody is standing there telling you what this really means yeah. you know master what did Jesus mean by that you know even yeah. the, that's how the narratives are cast in the Old Testament in, right. in the New Testament right. so even there in the narrative they would say well what this really meant was so and so and so and so right so you know if you're raised in that tradition and you're not a literalist that you know, you might believe the world was created in seven days or Jonah was in the belly of a right. whale, but right. if you were lucky or, I shouldn't say that, I don't wanna judge somebody's religious beliefs, but if you were raised in the Episcopal church like the, my father's church, um, nobody believed there was a Jonah or a whale. You know, that's a metaphor for something else. If you're in my mother's mother's church, you believe there was a big whale who ate this guy named Jonah. And he was in there and they spat him out, right? And that was, and you believe that Methuselah was 900 years old.
0: One film I want to throw in is a film, I only mention this because we just had Salman Rushdie and this was a film he waxes poetic about. A little independent film called The Wizard of Oz, 1939. (laughs) Oh, I loved
5: The Wizard of Oz. Whenever it was on every year, I insisted that we watch it. And my father never overruled me if there was a, a football game on or whatever which is amazing. Uh, we only have one TV for years, that, wow. that little black and white TV. Yeah. We were lucky because we had cable. See, cable was invented for rural America and specifically for uh, Western Maryland, Eastern Pennsylvania, and Western, uh, Eastern West Virginia because we lived in the mountains and the signal wouldn't get that far. So cable came to Piedmont in 1949. The year, we had nine channels.
0: 1949?
5: Yeah, I was born in 1950. And wow. my grandmother had the house, uh, the highest on the hill, and the cable came over the mountain, so she was the first person wow. to get cable, and everybody came to watch. Did it scare you? It. Or did it remember? Yeah, the monkey, the homunculi, is that what they're called? The Those flying monkeys? flying monkeys, yeah. yeah. fly my pretties. Fly. Are they called
0: yeah. the homunculi? I don't know their formal Anyway, they scared the I don't know bejesus. their species name. They
5: scared the bejesus out of me. I would <laughs> have nightmares about that. But uh, here's what I liked, and this is what appealed to me the whole time. I mean, even from the, from the time I was a little kid, that the thing that you lacked you and thought would justify you or authorize you, you already had. Mm. That's, the whole, that's one of the many morals of the story.
0: Yeah. Uh, I hate to take a hard left turn, but it did remind me, because I was putting this together, of another small film that came out in 1939, Gone with the Wind, um, and also Hattie McDaniel. Um, okay.
5: I remember the last time I saw Gone with the Wind, I was 18 or 19, I went with my girlfriend, who's this white girl, and she was very sentimental about the South. And I and we were in Kaiser, West Virginia, which is five miles away. That's a county seat, it had 7,500 people. And it was a big thing, I mean, and I was doing a Guess it's Coming to Dinner uh, thing. <laughs> By being there with her, it was quite scandalous, right? Yes. And everybody in this, all these white people, you know, this is West Virginia, which went heavily for Donald Trump, it used to be, very democratic state until Barack showed up. And they went like, no, nah, no, we're not going there. That was too much. And then with Hillary and it went heavily yeah. for Donald um, Donald Trump. And um, in the middle of this, I mean, we're watching in 68 or 69. And precisely when everybody's starting to cry about the loss of the old, I busted out laughing really loud. <laughs> and to everybody looked at me like, what are you doing? Why are you sitting here? Um, you know, when the, the Old South going down, I'm supposed to be sad about that? And when she tears down the curtains and makes a dress out of it, and all, you know, it's yeah. like, ha ah. yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I could not romanticize slavery, right? And, you know, I would have been a butler or something. Mm-hmm. I would have, I, you know, I often think about that in terms of luck. Yeah. Here's something that's very important, I think, for, for you all to consider. Think about all the women, for those of you in the room, think of those of you who are gay, or trans, or those of you who are black or Hispanic, no matter what you do, if you had the same intelligence, the same sensibility 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you wouldn't be able to do what you do now. Is that luck or not? Yeah. And I think about all those black people who were just as smart, if not smarter than Cornel West or Michael Eric Dyson or Larry Bobo or William Julius Wilson and you know, little old me. Um, we never would have taught it. Harvard or Yale or even gotten in. Even, look, I went to Yale in 69 with 96 black men and women, affirmative action. Why do I say that? The class of 66 at Yale had six black guys to graduate. Mm. And if you look at their bios, they were rich black kids or well connected to a rich white person who had gone to Yale. So I would never have gotten into uh, Yale without affirmative action, that's the luck It's the luck of being born at a certain time. My brother, five years older, went to West Virginia University, which was a big deal. And he got three degrees, including one of the first degrees of a black person at West Virginia School of Dentistry. But it never would have occurred to him to apply to Yale or Harvard. It just was not, in spite of the fact that my father's cousin had gone there, that was somehow not... It was going to the university 60 miles away, not going 424 miles away to Yale, or could you have gotten in, or yeah. they, nobody even knew about. It. That's the lesson, one of the lessons of Malcolm Gladwell's the tipping point. When you're born has uh, can have a tremendous impact on your Set of possibilities.
0: There's timing and there's trailblazing, and they're not mutually exclusive, certainly. But when I was thinking of Hattie, Hattie McDaniel, uh, she was no- a genius, nominated for an Oscar, won an Oscar. Sorry, that year. Yeah. Uh, she, but reviled by some corridors of, of culture. Um, yeah, she said, "I'd rather play a maid than be one." Um, right. She, after <laughs> I going, said,
5: "I'm with you." And she climbed in her Cadillac and had her minkota.
0: <laughs> good night, everybody. <laughs> After, uh, sorry, throw my stuff out the window. After, um, it's interesting. The acceptance of this award uh, was she was at the Ambassador Hotel. Yeah. And uh, blacks weren't allowed in no. the room. Mm. Uh, David O. Selznick, the producer, had to lobby a favor to get her to be in the room, physically in the room. She wasn't allowed to sit in the front <laughs> dais or anything. She had to actually sit with her lawyer, her white lawyer in the back. Um, <laughs> some Can people, you imagine? She was also in Song of the South. I watched that recently. Why and what did you think?
5: I watched it because my colleague Maria Tartar, who is the great uh, professor of folklore at Harvard, and she does those best-selling uh, Norton annotated Folk tales of this and folk tales of that. She and I have done the first really um, a large annotated collection of African American folk tales. Wow! And in the introduction, we she asked me to watch Song of the South again because Disney took Uncle Remus. You have to put Uncle Remus tales in an, a history, a collection of African American folk tales, yeah. because Joel Chandler Harris is the first person to write a lot of this stuff down. And then Disney and went 48. Made it to a film, which is very controversial. In fact, Alice Walker um, um, wrote a, a famous essay in which she said that Disney had ruined um, Uncle Remus for him, Brer Rabbit, and Brer Bear, because it's very zippity doo dah, zippity, and that's where it, that comes from.
0: Does it make you cringe? The film?
5: It didn't when I was a little kid. I thought it was cool, um, you know, so much for my sophisticated, uh, you know, capacities. I thought it was. I didn't realize that they were. You know, often in Disney, the magpies, you know, those the blackbirds and stuff, or had racist. They they had a heavy black dialogue, and they had um, Rochester, who was on the Jack Benny show. Right. He certainly did some of the birds in "Song of the South." Yeah. And it's a very heavy black dialect, and it's not really flattering to <laughs> African Americans, to to say the least. Brer Bat, Brer Rabbit, and Brer Bear are. Um, Prima facie evidence that the slaves, who, the Africans who were enslaved, brought their culture with them. These animal tales came from Africa, yeah. clearly linked to Africa, yeah. and they survived the Middle Passage, and it was a way of ordering your world, allegorically. Right. So this is the other thing. Anybody who understands a children's story, a folk tale, understands the nature of metaphor and allegory. Right. Allegory is just the extent a metaphor, right? Yeah. So you know these were not really bre- Any, I mean, I don't see how anyone would not understand that this helpless little rabbit, defying um, the uh, fox that's gonna eat him, or the wolf, you know, for, in those tales, is the rabbit is standing for an enslaved person, outfoxing a more superior being who could devour him, right? And tricking them all the time. So that the trickster motif. You know that this was about the slaves weren't talking about animals. They were talking about their relationship to the master. They were talking about superordinates and subordinates in any system of power. Hmm. That's genius to be able to to do that and to repeat it on a plantation and not be killed for it. Right? Uh, That's the power of metaphor.
0: Just to, to... Buttonhook, the idea of um, Hattie, or the topic of Hattie. Hattie's first role in Hollywood was in a John Ford film. I forgot the film, but Stepin' Fetchit was in the film with Hattie. And what's interesting... And Stepin'
5: Fetchit was a genius. You know, he wasn't... Ah, Madison, ah, nah, nah. That's not who he was. He was a sophisticated person. He was playing a role. Yeah. Now, you might not like the role. Well, that's the thing. You what? couldn't be Sidney Poitier in 1935, right? I mean, you couldn't. Hollywood was only going to give you... A maid, a a black man who was shiftless and lazy, and uh, a self-parody. What are you going to do? Either, you
0: know, you couldn't make do the right thing in 1935. The NAACP was very critical of Hattie at her death. Right. Uh, I think Howard University. She gave her Oscar to Howard University, and they had it appraised. It was worth nothing. They appraised it at zero, a value of zero dollars. Yeah, but that's ridiculous. I know. It's
5: in the National African American Museum. It was very important, she, was a, um, she broke down color barriers, yeah. but she played a maid, that, but what else was she going to play? She yeah. was not going to play Scar- Scarlett O'Hara, yeah. right? Right. So, and, and fetch it was not going to play Rhett Butler.
0: What's well, interesting, one of, the, one of the roles she coveted, but did not get... Imitation of Life. Imitation of Life. When was the first time you saw Imitation?
5: Oh, again, it was on the Late Late Show. there were only two movies that you would watch, black movies, The Green Pastures are imitation of life. And it's an allegory about not passing for white. There's a black woman, it's like the original Aunt Jemima, though they don't, they call her Delilah.
0: Aunt Delilah.
5: Yeah, Claudette Colbert, and I have had this thing about Claudette Colbert since I was a little kid. I thought Claudette Colbert was its goddess. I have an original poster. In my house. Just
0: to jump in here, Skip. sorry, okay. if you look at the credit sequence, again, not not to take left yes. turns around your right turns, but Louise Beaver. Louise Beaver Look at her billing of, it's funny for a major character, her billing is kind of in the middle in a sense. Yeah. You know, dramaturgically,
5: it's right. kind of. And Freddie Washington is a black woman, but she looks white. plays her daughter, she plays her daughter. Piola. Uh-huh. And
0: there was a very famous essay, I don't know if you've ever read the essay of this film it's called Imitation of Life once a pancake that was Sterling Brown Sterling Brown Yeah, yeah, yeah
5: but- they are like all rich and they're signing this contract with poor with Delilah and they say Delilah you never have to work again we're, we're rich now and she goes oh miss B Louise Beaver says oh miss B you don't want me to you don't love me anymore I can't work for you anymore I just want to cook and clean for you and take care of, Take care of you. And she, she goes, oh, Lila, I knew you'd say that. And she goes, well, if you sign, you own part of the company, like 20%. And I'm thinking, man, she should own 99% of the company. <laughs> I just want enough money to have a grand funeral in the great New Orleans tradition. And Ned Sparks looks at the camera and says, once a pancake, always a pancake. <laughs> well, she just didn't want to quit. Right. So you want to stop serving this white woman? She's a millionaire. And that was a running joke of my family. Right. Whenever anybody did something stupid, my father would say, "Once a pancake, always a pancake."
0: Well, it's interesting. <laughs> there were kind of relevant thinkers who thought the film was playing into stereotypes that maybe weren't as progressive. You know, do you does that enter your reading of the film in any way?
5: Yeah, but the the sub uh, narrative is this little girl breaks her mother's heart. If you're in our living room, right in Piedmont. Everybody's crying. And I look at my mama and go, mama, mama, I never passed for white, mama. I never passed for white. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, mama, I love you. <laughs> but, but what's interesting, you, 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 oh, it's <laughs> hilarious, but it's- uh, yeah. I didn't know this was a comedy. <laughs> no, but it was, um, you know, think about it. It's like, if you pass for white, if you are racially indeterminate, you will break your mother's heart you, because it deconstructs race. Because if, if race is indeterminate, if you can't really tell who's black, right, then it can't be a biological, con- it can't be an essence. So inadvertently, it's a very progressive film because it's saying that it's only an act of will that keeps you within these boundaries society would impose in a racist society of who's black and who's white and who's whatever. So it's complicated, isn't it? it.
3: you're back. Yes, mother, and I want to tell you how sorry I am for what I did to you. Oh, that's all right. Come. Come, baby, and sit down. It don't feel like you're really here standing so far off. Mother, I've done everything you wanted me to. I went to that school and tried to be happy there to please you. But I just couldn't bear it. I couldn't. I had to get away. I understand, baby. We're gonna forget all about it now. It's all right. But it isn't all right, mother. I want to talk to you. I'll go upstairs, Delilah. No, Miss B. You stay, please. I want you to hear, too. What's my little baby got on her mind? I want to go away. Go away? Go away, Viola. I mean... By that I mean, I want to go away. And you mustn't see me, or own me, or claim me, or anything. I mean, even if you pass me on the street, you'll have to pass me by. Oh, no, Piola. Oh, I know it's terrible and me, Miss B. But you don't know what it is to look white and be black. You don't know. I can't go on this way any longer. I can't give up a baby. I bore you. I nursed you. I love you. I love you more than you can guess. You can't ask your mammy to do this. You've got to promise me, mother. I'm your mammy, child. I ain't no white mother. It's too much to ask of me. I ain't got the spiritual strength to meet it. I can't hang on no cross. I ain't got the strength. You can't ask me to unborn my own child. I'm sorry, Mother. I know it's asking, for love. But I've got to live my own life. Bye. You, how can you hurt your mother so? How can you make her suffer this way? I'm sorry, Miss B, but I can't help it.
0: And there was also, to put into context, the one-drop
5: rule. Which still is, basically, um, I think that we still function with the one-drop rule. Now, I am genetic. If anybody's watched Finding Your Roots, you know that my my genome, I'm 50-50. I'm half sub-Saharan African and half European. What that means is that um, if you have an ideal family tree back 300, 400 years, half my ancestors would be white and half would be black. That's just as simple as that. And I married a white woman, so the mother of my two children was white, so that means if I'm 50% white and 50% black, my kids do the math, they're 75% white and 25% black. That's basically how it works. Then my daughter married a white boy, right? So they have a a little daughter, and she's so 87.5% if I'm doing the math right, European. There's not much, my girlfriend's Cuban, says, Papi, not much black left. <laughs> <laughs> so, the one drop rule, the law of hypodescent, which was instituted during slavery to control the, the offspring of a master raping a, a slave or cajoled sexuality, so that the children follow the condition of the mother. If your mother was free, even if she was black, you would be free, but if she was a slave, and your father owned uh, the slave, who was your mother, you were a slave, Mm. and that's the law of hypodescent. And basically, we still operate under that law. And if it's not legal, it is the supposition.
0: It's interesting, 1967, technically, it was made illegal. Loving versus Virginia, which we will talk about because it ties right in. Well, Loving
5: versus Virginia made undid the law against miscegenation. Right. You know?
0: 1934 it was actually nominated for Best Picture for an Oscar. Not that that's a referendum on anything, but yeah. t- to talk about this, this kind of uh, slightly unilateral rejection of it, but it's still revered. I yeah.
5: saw another version at the Majestic Theater in Piedmont called I Pass for White, oh, which wow. was a third iteration. Really? Oh, yeah. How it's kind interesting. of slutty.
0: I should see that. You seem to have an agnostic view of film in a sense. Oh, yeah. Which I think is important in terms of teaching it and learning it.
5: No, I would not. Censorship, to me, censorship is the art as lynch against the justice. I am firmly against anyone. You know, I'm on the board of the Whitney Museum. And some of you are aware that there was this controversy over a white female artist did this kind of abstract uh, image of Emmett Till in the casket. And there was some black... Uh, artists and got organized, exercised about this, and they circulated a petition that it should be destroyed, you know. And I, that is th- so crazy to me um, that anybody would destroy a work of art. You have a right to make a rendition of anything you want. I mean, it's, I believe in that kind of freedom. So I would not center it, I would teach it and then critique it.
0: What's interesting about Freddie Washington, F-R-E-D-I. She was black. She was black and she struggled to get any roles after this because- What are you gonna do? How
5: many I pass for white films that are gonna be, right? Well, it's an
0: interesting, interesting (laughs) conundrum is, is is selling it way too short. It's an interesting reality that here's a beautiful woman who's a really talented, skilled actress and because of literally the box she checked as a human being at this time, she couldn't do anything more. She couldn't be Claude Colbert.
5: No, and I used to have arguments with Robert Brewstein, who's a friend of mine. A- and A-R-T, I was on yeah. his board at the ART. Now mm-hmm. I'm on Diane Paulus' board. And Bob Brewstein really could never wrap his head around a black person playing a quote unquote white character. He was But very, to me, yeah. why not? And we saw it with Hamilton. How many of you saw Hamilton? Where black people played everything in the Founding Fathers. And it didn't matter because you're suspending disbelief anyway, right? It's all a fiction. So who cares what the actor looks like? You don't have to look like, now you can't look like a Shakespearean character because they were in his head. Nobody knows what they
0: looked like. Well, I've also heard you speak to it in terms of authority too. Does does my heredity disqualify me from being a Shakespeare expert? You yes, know, of course. As we're talking, to- you know. If you
5: say you can't, uh, you don't have the authority to make a film about black people or to write about the black experience in a novel um, or to be a um, sophisticated critic of Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Are Watching God*, unless you're black, right? Or a woman and black. That means that the same argument could be used against a black person like me writing about Shakespeare or about right. John Milton, right. and you all would agree, I'm sure, that a person who said that I couldn't teach Shakespeare because I'm not primarily of Anglo-Saxon descent, that would be a big, fat racist. The same argument has to be, uh, has to obtain, um, for any other subject, position, relationship to a text. I, I you agree. don't have to look like the text to be an expert on the text. That's stupid. I agree. But I don't, you don't have to be Jewish to write about Jewish literature or Jewish culture. You don't have to be black to write about black. Culture. You have to be smart and work hard. It closes down. And I fundamentally believe that yeah. everything has to be teachable and learnable. If it's not, then it's not a real subject. I agree, I love that. It's some kind of mystical thing,
0: experience. Because that that, that other view just closes down conversation. It does. We are going to get to a filmmaker who would probably disagree with you, but we will... And I've heard Spike, him, Spike. Of course, and, right. Yeah. So we'll get to Spike Lee in a, in a little while. I but, disagree with Spike in his face. Right. My friend. I, that's going to say your colleague. The second film, um, I'll let you introduce it. Guess who's coming to dinner? Guess who's coming to dinner? It Was released in 1967, which is a fascinating year.
5: Same year as Loving v. Virginia. Loving v. Virginia.
0: 1967 riots, a lot of uh, racial tension. Sure. Uh, Malcolm X was shot two years. In pre- 65. February 65, right? Um, but the summer
5: of 67, Detroit, Newark. Big riot. Here,
0: the Roxbury Riot. Uh-huh. Tell me why you chose this film to land on. Well,
5: I took so much inspiration from Sidney Poitier. I love Spencer Tracy and I love I have a Hepburn thing. Catherine and Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> um, I, you know, either one. I could have you know, it's the incest thing. I'm well <laughs> what were they? Aunt and niece or whatever they were. <laughs> um, but Sidney Poitier was he was a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor. I was raised to be, to be a doctor, right? And he was so cool uh, and so well spoken. And he inspired me. I mean, I just thought, man, if I could grow up to be the character in that film, uh, then that would be a good thing. It was and an, win the Nobel Prize.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was an incredible year for him. Uh, to Serve with Love was that year. Yeah. Uh, and The Night was that year. Lilies
5: of the Field was 63. You know, Sitting there in Piedmont, West Virginia, it never occurred to me no that I would ever meet any of these people, right. and I ended up meeting a lot of them, like Sidney Poitier. In
0: 1967, he was the biggest star in Hollywood. When did I, you first meet Sidney? What was that like?
5: Um, when I spent the most time, I don't know when I first met him, but when I spent the most time with him was in South Africa. We were part of Oprah's, um, she invited some of her friends to go with her when she opened the girls' school, the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy. And there was Sydney, so we hung out, and it was cool, Ben. You know, yeah. he's like my man. <laughs> uh, I love is, him. Is he's he great. cool? Like, yeah, he he's just so cool gives and elegant. Off. And so, um, I've tried. I begged him to let me do his family tree for finding roots. In fact, we've done his family tree. Yeah. And um, he was worried that we couldn't find anything, and I can't tell him what's in it. You know, right. I'm revealing everything on camera. But I assured him that we had found things, and he said, "Okay." And then he said, "No," because he's very private.
0: He, se- he seems to be living yeah, a private life. It's interesting. His mother. Um, he went. He uh, was raised in Florida, primarily, I believe, and he lived with his brother. And he, then he wanted to go to New York and be an actor. Right. And he said the best advice his mom ever gave him was, "Charm them into neutral, son." There you go. What do you think about that? Does that?
5: Sure, I understand that. It's the same concept as Whistling Vivaldi, which is a book written by my friend Claude Steele, who's a black psychologist now at Berkeley. Uh, He was at Stanford for years. Um, And it's a, a story that Brent Staples, the black guy who writes in the New York Times, would tell. He would see somebody white coming down the street and he would start whistling Vivaldi so they would know that he wasn't gonna mug them or rape them or something. And it's about stereotype threat and how you disappoint stereotypes. Yeah. That, and I tell my students, imagine what it was like to be Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, as every, everybody knows, first black man to get a PhD from Harvard in 1895. Um, and there were only a handful of, of, of black kids you know, there. And you couldn't say, you know, I, I listened to Ragtime last night and I love watermelon fried chicken. <laughs> yes. You couldn't be yourself. Because you had to disappoint these. My uncle, he went to BU. Um, in the 50s. He's a Methodist minister, retired. And I remember when he came home, he talked differently, and he said he didn't like watermelon. This is the thing I remember. We had this big family reunion every year. And he said, no, no, I don't like watermelon. And I'm like, whoa, what are you talking about? I used to see you porking out a watermelon. You know, it was like, no, it's beyond me, beneath me to have watermelon. So I remember thinking, I never want to do that. I never want to come back, no matter where I go to school, or no matter if I become the Sidney Poitier character, I want to be able to come back to Piedmont, go to the colored VfW of my dad, and people still think I'm skippy Gates, you know yeah, yeah. I wanted to be bilingual, and I didn't want to have to give up my blackness uh, in order to be successful in a white society when did
0: you first see it and was it radical to you at that time absolutely yeah
5: it was I saw it when it came out when it came to Kaiser West Virginia <laughs> yeah. it wasn't like it opened in New York and then the next day it was in Piedmont right. It took a little while to filter down to the hills <laughs> yes but I went to see it um and oh that was like he was like Martin Luther King I mean he was a pioneer for the race yeah if you were dating across the color line you were making a statement against racism yeah. So, But also at that time, by this time, black power was around, so not everybody, some black nationalists thought it was disgusting to date or marry somebody across the color line. Yeah. So you had funny sets of political attitudes. Yeah. Some people thought it was a radical contribution to the civil rights movement. Other people thought it was retrograde
0: because you should
5: really stay within the race.
0: And the film represents a multiplicity of attitudes, which I found it really to its credit. Right. There's really an interesting scene that I wanted to get your thoughts on, because it made me wonder, can we have this scene in a movie today? It's Spencer Tracy and Sidney Poitier talking about dancing. And Spencer Tracy, uh, uh, paraphrasing badly, but basically says, so is that why black people have more rhythm than white sure, people? Right, right. And instead of being ironic and hip about it, Sidney Poitier explains it. Right. It, on his terms, he said, look, you know how to dance the Watusi. We are the Watusi. Right, yeah, right. It's actually a great line. He yeah. said, the reason we can dance better than you is it's our music and our, our uh-huh. rhythm and our moves. Right. I guess two questions. Well, one question. Or no, a thought. Can, we can't have that scene in a movie today.
5: No, nobody, I was thinking, well, nobody's going to do that today. You can't, yeah, you can't say you people have rhythm or you play basketball better because you have a basketball team. Because that's essentializing race. And we were still very much in the grip of that. That's yeah. been a theme of ours for the last hour, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, these notions that, you know, I speaking of basketball, since we were talking about that, I asked this question. There are 42 million African Americans to 21 million African American men. So how many um, black doctors, lawyers, dentists, and black athletes, let's say black men in the NBA, so people guess all kind of wild stuff. But it turns out, and I can't remember the statistics tonight, but because my brother went to dental school, um, I think there are about 6,000 black dentists. And there are 375 black men who play in the NBA, 375. But kids think it's easier to get into the NBA than to get into dental school. And yeah. far more doctors and then and uh, lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. So, we have many people think that black people are just more naturally gifted on the basketball court. But these guys are the rarest of the rare. They're yeah. in this little tiny elite. And they're, um, so even black people have imbibed these attitudes about what we can naturally do. And there are many families who invest their whole, their family's entire future on their kid making it into the NFL or the NBA when they should be investing their family's future on getting them into law school, med school, dental school, or the professions, and they would end up making a lot more money. I'm just, it's a long-winded way of saying that these racist ideas about biology and character, the relationship between what you might think of as character and characteristics, biology and essence, have been imbibed by everybody, not just racist. Um, anti-black. People.
0: This film tends to have those conversations, which again is to its credit. There's it, it, uh, a line later where he says, "And she wants to have. She, she, she's convinced all our kids can be the president." Someday. Oh yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Many people
5: have referred to this that, that this uh, that we forgot. But she had this vision that they would have the first black president. Right. Uh, Jay Johnson, who was uh, Obama's head of um, the uh, Homeland Security. Yeah. I uh, use this for a sermon on Martin Street. You know, this moment when the woman who Sidney Poitier would marry says, our children grow up be the first black president.
0: It's interesting. We haven't talked a lot about craft tonight, but it has some of the greatest work in close-up. You want to study actors working in close-up. Mm. You know, Poitier was a master. I show my oh, students, man. there's a scene with him and his dad where he says, "You, you think of yourself oh it's great as a colored man yeah and And i I think of myself as a man and his eyes it's literally almost like he can control each eye within an inch of its
5: sydney poitier could evince more anger than when he got angry but oh my god you know but his transitions are razor
0: sharp as you can see there he's in and out of charm and determination and humor, I mean he runs a range as an actor. I think he has one of the greatest skill sets. Of right.
5: And look at his eyes, like you said, they're independent. It's literally like
0: a camera irising yeah. and focusing. I mean, it's extraordinary work. I mean, this is this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. He's a genius,
5: Sidney Poitier.
0: Yeah. Really. I think he's one of the great actors of any generation. Of any generation.
6: But you've got to stop and think. Have you thought what people would say about you? Why, in 16 or 17 states, you'd be breaking the law. You'd be criminals and say they changed the law. That don't change the way people feel about this thing. You know, for a man who all his life never put a wrong foot anywhere, you're way out of line, boy. That, that's me to decide, man. So just shut up and let me... You don't say that to me. You haven't got the right to ever say a thing like that to me, not after what I've been to you. You know that and I know that. Yeah, I know what you are and what you made of yourself, but you know I worked my ass off to get the money to buy you all the chances you had. You know how far I carried that bag in 30 years? 75,000 miles and mowing lawns in the dark. So you wouldn't have to be stoking furnaces and could bear it out on the books. I tell you there were things your mother should have had that she insisted go instead for you. And I don't mean fancy things. I mean a decent coat, a lousy coat. And you're gonna tell me now that means nothing to you and you could break your mother's heart? Well, I don't care what your mother says. Maybe she's gone haywire, too. This is between you and me. That's the first thing you said that makes any sense,
2: because that's exactly where it's at. Yeah,
6: and what I mean to say no, is you that... said what you
2: had to say. You listen to me. You say you don't want to tell me how to live my life. So what do you think you've been doing? You tell me what rights I've got or haven't got and what I owe to you for what you've done for me? Let me tell you something. I owe you nothing if you carried that bag a million miles you did what you were supposed to do because you brought me into this world and from that day you owed me everything you could ever do for me like i will owe my son if i ever have another but you don't own me you can't tell me when or where i'm out of line or try to get me to live my life according to your rules You don't even know what I am, Dad. You don't know who I am. You don't know how I feel, what I think. And if I tried to explain it the rest of your life, you will never understand. You are 30 years older than I am. You and your whole lousy generation believes the way it was for you is the way it's got to be. And not until your whole generation has lain down and died will the dead weight of you be off our backs. You understand? You've got to get off my back. Dad, you're my father. I'm your son. I love you. I always have, and I always will. But you think of yourself as a colored man. I think of myself as a man.
1: Yeah,
5: but imagine being that age and only being cast in quote-unquote black roles it had to be terrible. Yeah. And so, by extension, go back to Louise Beavers and Hattie McDaniels, you know, that they they could only play maids or a cook or step and fetch it playing a handyman that's kind of a, a parody. It's horrible. Well, about the same time, um, Richard Pryor's on the Johnny Carson show. I used to watch Johnny Carson show every night. Yeah. And there's a scene with Richard Pryor and Johnny Carson. And Johnny Carson said, so it must have been about I I think about 67 or 68, I can't remember. And Johnny Carson says, you get in a lot of trouble for using, he didn't say the N word, he said, nigger. And Richard Pryor said, yeah. And and Johnny Carson said, what do you say to black people who criticize you? he says, get out of my face, nigger. (laughs) And it's hilarious. Because it's Richard Pryor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody could get away with that anymore. No, no. Right. Right.
0: Speaking of uh, President Obama, it'll tiptoe a little bit into our... What,
5: what was the segue with... Of you Ridley? were talking about presidents
0: and... Oh, no, I'm being... Public. The last film, before let's get into the joviality before we get, dig into this film, which I think is a film that will live well beyond both of us. I think this is a great film of all time. This was uh, Barack and Michelle's first date. Yeah, this was their date. This movie. Yeah. And Spike said, thank God you didn't take her to Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah. And then he said, even worse, and you Cambridge fans would know, he said, even worse, you could have taken her to see Soul Man. Oh, <laughs> Remember right. that film? Yeah. About the, the, the guy who's in, I think, is, is he literally in blackface and joins yeah. the Harvard basketball team? Yeah, and
5: there's a whole genre of these, like Watermelon Man. Yeah. When somebody wakes up and they're a different race or something. They undergo a transformation, or they pretend to be another race.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so the film. But, yeah. but wait a minute. Yeah, In sir. terms
5: of driving mestizy, I think Morgan Freeman is one of the great um, actors of our time, and just because he played um, a driver doesn't make it racist. You know, I disagree with Spike about
0: that. I don't know if he's still teaching at Harvard occasionally or.
5: No, no. I, he's the first person I hired at Harvard 1991 right. with Spike Lee. And he taught three years, he taught two courses uh, a semester.
0: There's so much Spike Lee I wanna get into. So the film though, not to bury the lead, the film that you chose to screen. Oh, Do the Right Thing. Do the Right
5: Thing. And I thought it would be a neat and third part of the trilogy yeah
0: I, let's let's go back a little bit i flipped because i want oh, and the other reason yeah.
5: was i had just done john tutoro's family tree he's
0: just, he's great smart smart oh, dude. He's, great. Really he's made great, over 60 films incredible guy yeah. um just to put into some dramaturgical historical so spike wrote a script called heat wave that was actually the original title of do, do the right thing uh the, i didn't know that the, i just remember everything about the first time i saw it do the right thing i mean it and it's funny, some people, you know, this, this was Spike's third film, not, you know, he had done She's Gotta Have It, he had done School Days. I think She's Gotta Have It is one of the great American debut feature films ever. Oh, it's fabulous. It's unbelievable, the way he... Yeah,
5: his, a woman determining her own sexuality and sexual choices, a black a, woman in a film made by a black man at that time, that was amazing.
0: Film students should be seeing that Lola film Lola
5: Darling what was the character's name. Incredible, and this,
0: Spike's creativity is always... Like oh, yeah. head of the class, yeah. but anyway, tell us a little bit about when you first saw "Do the Right Thing." Obviously, when it came out, but where were you? What was the energy around? I was still
5: it? a Duke, and um, what I remember most was uh, Radio Rahim. yeah, because he had a boombox, remember? And he's carrying it around. It's a, it's a light motif in the film
0: and "Fight the Power." And it's funny. The original idea was Spike was gonna use Cool Jerk, that song, Cool Jerk. Doo- oh yeah, doo- I love doo- that song. Doo- 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 doo. And at the very last moment, I guess, um, Chuck D and it all kind of came together. Yeah. And and and,
5: and, well, and Cool Jerk would have looked to the past and "Fight um, the power, looked to the future. We didn't know that all these years later, we'd still be in the era of hip hop.
0: What's amazing, when films, I always tell my film students, when films start with a clock, you know, you literally, time-stamping this film that takes place over 24 hours, which is incredible. Like
5: a classical tragedy, Greek
0: tragedy. 100%. Sam Jackson, who was in School Days uh, with Spike. um,
5: And he played, yeah, and he did this film for basically nothing. Nothing. And he plays his DJ. And also, I see Davis, Davis, and Ruby D. Incredible. She's a uh, mother sister.
0: Mother sister, d- the mayor. Yeah, he's the, just the, mayor. the coolest, sweet Dick Willie. And Roger Smith was my student at Yale. Really, in the master's. He's pre- incredible. Firm. This again. This is talking about master classes of acting. Uh, Danny Aiello said something funny. He said, "I am the Jackie Robinson of black movies." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he said he didn't realize we. He said the cast didn't realize we were making a tragedy because. Because Spike never communicated, like, this lit, the script was so great. You know, Martin Lawrence, John Savage. It's amazing. Rosie it? Perez debut. I mean, this. And he made it with no money. No money. Uh, the Dutch oh Angles. God.
5: Ernest Dickerson. Ernest Dickerson was the cinematographer.
0: Unsung hero of early Spike Fleet films.
5: Spike and Ernest Dickerson had this symbiotic relationship. Beautiful. And I don't think either one. You know, it's you read one of my those mind, things. You've written my mind. If you yeah. could say, whatever made you guys break up, it's not worth it. Go back and you were you were better together than separate. You read my
0: mind. It's 100%. true. 100%.
5: Ernest wanted to be a director. He wanted to be a filmmaker. And he really is a great cinematographer. He did a film
0: called Juice. That was his first breakout yeah. with Tupac. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Mediocre film. But he, And they, I don't
5: think Spike's films are ever as good as these when he made it with... 100%. Right.
0: The, this, They watched The Third Man to prepare, as you see a lot of these Dutch angles, and the colors, and the light, and the thing, Ernest Dickerson is a magician. Oh yeah. Let's watch a scene, this is the scene where it's a meeting of the minds, let's say. It's John Turturro and Spike Lee have a kind of come to Jesus about love and race, and what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, in and outside of the neighborhood.
3: Oh, that's great. Can I talk to you for a second? What? Pino, who's your favorite basketball player? Magic Johnson. Who's your favorite movie star? Eddie Murphy. Who's your favorite rock star? Prince. You're a Prince for Bruce. Prince. Bruce. Pino, all you ever talk about is nigga this and nigga that. And all your favorite people are so-called niggas. It's different. Magic, Eddie, Prince are not niggas. I mean, they're not black. I mean, let me explain myself. They're, they're not really black. I'm, I mean, they're black, but they're not really black. They're, they're more than black. It's, it's it's different. It's different? Yeah, to me, it's, it's different. You know, deep down inside, I think you wish you were black. Get the fuck of here. Laugh if you want to. You know, your hair is kinkier than mine. What does that mean? And you know what they say about dark Italians? You know, I've been listening and reading. You have been reading now? I read. I've been reading about your leaders. Reverend Al, Mr. Do, sharp tone, Jesse, keep hope alive. That's fucked up. Keep hope alive. Hey, that's fucked, don't talk about Jesse. And uh, even uh, the other guy, what's his name? Uh, Man, Farrakhan. Um, Minister Farrakhan. Uh, sorry, Minister Farrakhan. Anyway, Minister Farrakhan always talks about the so-called day when the black man will rise we will one day what does he say we will one day rule the earth as we did in in our glorious past that's right what past you talking about what what did i miss we started civilization man keep dreaming man then you woke up pino fuck you fuck your fucking pizza and fuck frank sinatra yeah well fuck you too and fuck michael jackson Judaígo, Wab,
4: Guinea, Garlic Bread, Pizza Sling, and Spaghetti Bini. Victor on Perry Como, Luchado Pavarotti, Solo Meal, Non-Singer Motherfucker.
0: You gold teeth, gold chain, wearing
3: fried chicken and biscuit eating monkey. Eight baboon, big guy, fast running, high jumping, spear chucking, three hundred and sixty degree basketball dunking, titsun', Spade, ya! Take your fucking
2: pizza, pizza, and go the fuck back to Africa. You little slanty-eyed, speaky American, own every fruit and vegetable stand in New York, bullshit Reverend Sun Young Moon, some Olympic 88 Korean kickboxing sabbatam bitch.
4: You Goya bean eating
3: 15 in a car, 30 in an apartment, pointy shoes, red-wearing, menudo, meet a Puerto Rican cocksucker? Yeah, you! It's
2: yes, Chip, I got good price for you, near Kachi. How I'm doing? Chocolate, egg cream drinking, beggar and a lot, banana, but nay, this Jew asshole. Yo, hold up! Time out! Time out!
4: Y'all take a chill! You need to cool that shit out! And that's the double truth, Ruth.
0: <laughs> <Well, laughs> that it, great? It, it, it's still. <laughs> Punches you in the face, yeah, this film. it's br- brilliant. He, he seemed to, and Dinkins was elected not too long after this film came out. So when you left this theater after seeing this movie, what, what were you feeling and thinking? Do you recall?
5: Oh, I was more, I was reacting not so much to um, its themes, its subject matter, but to its act of um, cinematography, as it were. To its qualities as a film. And I thought, the race has turned a corner or turned a page, that we have a genius among us, that as an act of filmmaking, this was superior to just about anything I think a black person had done, certainly in this country. There are other great filmmakers like Ousmane Sembène, Senegal, um, who was a a master of cinema. But in terms of black America, I thought that we had reached the higher level than we ever had in terms of all the things you were talking about before, how you actually make a film. And you don't, until you make a film or take a film class or you're just preternaturally, you know, um, perceptive, you don't realize how complicated it is to produce something in 90 minutes that actually tells a story and how long that takes and about storyboards and, like you said, angles and how films are always about other films that you said, what did you say, they watched The Third Man? Yeah. Yeah, that you have to learn. Spike used to say that. You know, you think you could just take a camera and walk (laughs) down the street and have a bunch of people telling the story and that makes a film. It's not, you have to study film, not black film. You have to study
0: film. He's a film, Spike was an NYU kid. It was an NYU film Yeah, NYU kid. kid. Yeah, him and Jarmusch and all those guys. Richard Edson, who was Jarmusch's actor, plays uh, the other brother. He's
5: very much a formalist in that, he is a, an, he insane. Form understands of us. form, understands the history of cinema. Absolutely, you know, And he can look at a scene and say, "This is really riffing on these other five films that don't have anything to do with black people."
0: Well, uh, less coded than questions. It wasn't nominated for an Oscar. Again, whether that's a referendum is for you to decide. Um, Kim Basinger though said something really interesting at the ceremony. She was giving away a, she was uh, giving an award and she said into the microphone, "Did you know the best film of the year isn't even nominated?" Oh yeah, let's do the right thing. Yeah,
5: but you know, and then Spike commented that said she was having an affair with Prince. Right at the time, he goes, "That was Prince put her up to that."
0: <laughs> Have you ever talked to Spike about the film face to face?
5: Yeah, I interviewed uh, Spike. An interview was published in Transition Magazine about 91 or 92. I talked to him about the film. I'd like to talk to him again.
0: Why? Well, all these years later. I was going to say, yeah, is it just uh, to see what's changed in his... Yeah, mindset it's like about things. Yeah.
5: 2009, two, 30 years later, almost. Yeah.
0: Uh, as I was implying before, he has been very outspoken about uh, filmmaker, like you know, a, a black filmmaker should make a film about a black community. You know, when Michael Mann made Ali, he was very critical of.
5: Uh, yeah, I disagree with him about that. You know, again, it goes back to my, anybody can write about something and make you can, you can render Emmett Till even and be a white woman. And that's fine, you know. That's we we have to judge your artistic product on its artistic merits. We can't censor you because you don't look like the subject. That's ridiculous. that's racist.
0: So and so and when he takes it to the extension of Quentin Tarantino, he shouldn't use the N word as much as he does.
5: I think Tarantino's a genius. So and so does Samuel Jackson, and I loved Django. Spike hated it. I did a long interview with Tarantino for the Root about, I thought uh, Django was hilarious and, br- and a brilliant parody. But I like parody. Some people don't. Again, with two live crew, I thought that um, Me So Horny, which is the, the song that got them arrested, was a parody. But you have to have a certain taste for parody. First of all, you have to understand it, not like Spike doesn't understand it. But then you have to like it. I like satire and parody. It pushes people's buttons. It allows you to do a critique through in direction, not really in direction, as much as exaggeration. Mm-hmm. And I happen to like it. Um, do, do you, do but you other th- people like social realism. They want you to adhere to, just give me the facts, you know. But on, on,
0: on a, on, in a campus climate, you must be heretical, <laughs> in a sense, it seems like. Well, I get around that. My,
5: the class that I alluded to earlier is really about the great debates that black people have had about what it means to be black in America since the 18th century. And the reason I do that is to show them that there's never been one way to be black in the black community. The black people have been arguing about what it means to be black since the day the first um, 20 got off the boat in Jamestown, arguing about how the hell to get out of here and get back to Africa. Yeah. You know, there have always been many ways to be black. We've always had people on the left, people on the right, people in the center. Du Bois lived so long and was had such a fecund mind that he had about four or five different ideological positions, which he would, he would have found himself disgusting at various points in his <laughs> life. Right? So that you can't ever just say there's one way to be black. Yeah. I like the multiplicity. Black Amer- there are more black Americans than all the people in Canada.
1: That's
5: black Americans amazing. are a nation within a nation. Martin Delaney said that in 1852, I believe. You know, it's a country within a country and it's as complex as any other country. I was thinking that I could have chosen after uh, Do the Right Thing, Get Out. And how many of you have seen Get Out? Uh, which, is, which is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, right? But it's a parody of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and also Du Bois' concept of double consciousness. The way that you know people, they suck up your consciousness and take over your body and in suspended animation. There's a Steph Curry commercial that uses that image of your consciousness going down in this, you're being inundated, submerged in a pool of water, struggling to get out. It's cu- very curious.
0: Uh, last question before we get to questions, if you're all still with us. Mm-hmm. The, the, the studio worried about the ending, and he, he tells, Spike tells us. Oh, sp-
5: yeah, I remember. They were worried, will there be riots? Yeah, and, and
0: Spike tells the yeah. story that Paramount wanted a happy ending on a Friday. He <laughs> said, on Monday, we were at Universal signing right. a deal. Right. When the film ended, and I wonder this about film now can films still be dangerous? Forget, you know, there's two questions here. One, how did you feel when you left the cinema? But two, can movies be dangerous anymore? Are we anesthetized because of where we are now? But it's been a pretty interesting recent history of films that I think, you know, are representing multiple views. Uh, Interesting.
5: Yeah, they're all making money too, which is great. I love Moonlight. I was a consultant for 12 Years a years Slave, and um, I hosted a screening for Raul Peck at the Kendall Square. We flew him over from uh, France to show I'm Not Your Name. I love James Baldwin. Yeah, And I actually knew it, so. Incredible. Yeah.
0: Do, do you like the term black filmmaker?
5: <laughs> yeah, I like the, I think that Black films constitute a subgenre in the history of film,
0: but the the terminology, the the, the appellation of a black film or a black filmmaker, does that do the, the descriptor of like a black film? Does is that an interesting descriptor? Is it an important descriptor? Is it?
5: Well, no. You would I would then ask, what do you mean? The, the director was black, or the cinematographer was black. Or, Most people don't. I love or that. all the actors are black. Right. What if you had a, all black characters, all black actors, and a white guy directed? Is that a black film or not? But these are things that people argue about all the time. No one quite knows what a black film. Is. The simplest definition is a film made by a black director, right? But um, there were a lot of people who would argue about that.
0: It's funny as we close. You know, I was thinking about Sidney Poitier. Someone asked him, "What changed your career?" he, just paraphrasing a little bit, he said blaxploitation did.
5: Oh, yeah. Which
0: was an interesting...
5: Yeah, we hosted uh, Pam Greer at She was up Park. in Cambridge, yeah. Yeah, and she was fabulous and watched uh, Jackie Brown, Foxy Brown. And she was, uh, she's a real hero. I mean, she took that genre and turned it inside out. Yeah. She was great. And Quentin, she loves Quentin Tarantino.
0: Then the last question, the last question, do films still matter?
5: Yeah, of course. Well, no, Remember, of course. I have a standing date every Friday and Saturday night. <laughs> it matters to me. You can find me, Fenway, Kendall, uh, Coolidge Corner. Now.
0: <laughs> well, just so you have a date to go to on Friday, I want to thank you for being here with us. I'll give it up for him. It's to been a Robert long, thinking, strange trip. Dr. Henry Louis Gates, thank Jr., you. thank you all. Thank you for being with great. us. Do- Dr. Gates, thank you so much. It's an honor. <laughs> we'll see you again, boss. Okay. talk about sensory educational overload and you know when you when one does these conversations with guests I'm I'm listening and taking it in and trying to put new pieces into the mix and also respond to the old pieces this one was one of the most you know ODing experiences I've ever had so much to sort through I'm gonna have to listen to this one again And um, it's, you know, like a great film. (laughs) You have to watch it again. You have to listen to this again. I'm really interested in, you know, it has to be teachable and it has to be learnable. And Skip's a teacher. And he said otherwise it becomes a sort of mystical experience. And, And what's wrong with that? Now teaching, you know, things that don't, that aren't touchable, seeable, smellable is doable, thankfully. And Skip is this really great mixture between a, He's such a pragmatist in a way but also a man of faith and not always spiritual faith but faith it's almost like faith in what what exists and continues the dialogue what i love about skip is you know when, when one thinks of the um you know to have thinking, reflecting and listening again to that conversation thinking you know i thought there were moments of Within my contribution to it, that he would push back, and he doesn't push back, and he do, doesn't diffuse. He he's merely, merely he he is about as unpc as one gets in terms of thinker. He's a liberated thinker. He's free of of the critical pieces of what he's saying, and he simply says it. He also has an incredible sense of humor, and but he also is he has this sort of get over yourself. Subtext, But he also he does the get over yourself in a way that one can take in his reaction to things and use and profit from them. He's a fascinating thinker and an orator and interlocutor. And I'm really honored we got a chance to speak with Skip and hopefully we'll get to do more stuff with Dr. Gates. We've had a few follow up conversations and they've been great. We want to thank Dr. Henry Lewis Gates Jr. for chatting with us and thank you for listening to the choice cuts of that. We will be in London upcoming with Donnie Yen. We will be in Chicago with Christopher Guest at the Onion Comedy Festival. You can go to our website all the time, murmurradio.com. You can go to iTunes and download us. You can go to Google Play and Stitcher, meet you at Stitcher, You can listen to us every week, 2 p.m., whupfm.org. See you soon.